Hey, welcome back to Reflection as a Service. You're, we're here to talk about software engineering and entrepreneurship. I'm Paul Merrill, your host and my co-host here. It's me, James. And we spoke last time with Jared Richardson. We're so happy to have him back to continue talking about the GROWS methodology. Um, James, I think where we where did we leave off talking with Jared? Before? I pleaded with Jared to you know help restore my faith in the Agile Manifesto and <laughs> and. and Give me some hope that the, the the littered landscape of agile, you know, methodology wrecks, so we can we can get something out of this. We can we can build back, you know, ten years ago in a reading that book on XP. I'm like, oh my goodness, if we could do this, we could do anything. And then uh, ten years later, I, there was nothing but like agile certifications and you know, black belt Six Sigma. Ninjas flying around and gosh knows what it, what did it buy us right uh, and I you know I just feel like yeah I mean we got some great stuff out of it but I think compared to the promise of it it's it feels like something we just you know it's like we kind of fell short yeah uh, and then so I see that there's grows and so my question to Jared was you know I see the site for grows and it, it again I feel like my my hopes being built up because I'm reading lots of great stuff so break grows down for me and help me to understand like. How does grows differ from what's come before? Uh, is this going to? How is this going to help us get back some of the promise that we were we were uh, we read about and tried to experience? You know, in the last the last decade of agile. And so Jared broke down kind of the the basics of grows. So I think we would try to drill down into some more of the uh, the other parts of it. Yeah, what I really liked is he was connecting the individual contributor with the executive that sets the the direction. Yeah. And he tied that all together with the grows method. And that might be a good place to pick up if you guys are are good with that. Yeah. Jared. Absolutely. Well well one other thing. So we talked about with grows being the Dreyfus model and there are steps, right, that that, that the beginners need. What we've got on the Grows website is a series of steps. If you go to, to growsmethod.com, you click on practices, you can come in by stage or by role. It's the same practices depending on which way you come in. But the goal is, right now, this is Jared and Andy's view of software, right, with, with significant input from a number of key people. But what it should be, if in a year from now this website hasn't changed with the community weighing in and the community changing the practices we, we have a, a, a another local guy who wrote some books for the pragmatic programmer joe fair who has written up one of the practices that we're going to add to the website the goal is that this will actually be an agile agile methodology if it still looks the same in a year if it still looks substantially similar in you know two to three to five years we have completely failed the goal is for Andy and myself to set up a skeleton and a framework that the community can contribute to. The whole website's in a Git repo. We'll eventually open it up to key people, and it will be shaped by the community as new practices come along, as new techniques come along. As we learn, we want this to change with it. We don't want it to be frozen in time. I like that, and I think there wasn't – I think the those folks who came together like Andy for – the Agile Manifesto had that in mind. I just think it hasn't happened as much. I've been looking for what's after Agile for for quite a few years now. Um, I'm right there with you on some of these. One of the things that you mentioned in the last episode, Jared, was you were talking about how you know it, if we have a practice that we can implement, 
to replace some of the practices that come along with Scrum or XP or whatever, then let's do it. I think that's a really healthy way to approach Agile and to grow it within your organization. What I see as being unhealthy and more often the case is that, hey, we don't like retrospectives. They make people feel bad. We, we have to change things when we do retrospectives. We have to be accountable in the next <coughs> retrospective about the last one. And those are the things when, so we've decided not to do retrospectives. Those are the things, those practices when we decide not to do something and we don't implement something to replace, uh, the, the growth of that methodology within our workplace and, and to replace whatever the reasoning, uh, the, 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 the principle behind the thing is then then we're kind of I don't like seeing that I think that's unhealthy it makes it difficult to grow doesn't it it sure does <laughs> so you're saying you're saying people would will abandon a particular practice oh, not not be not because they've they've replaced it with something that has the same out, outcome or effect but because eh, it makes me have icky feelings it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's right. it's hard. I had a team this morning tell me that they were going to go from two week sprints to three week sprints. And I said, well, well, what's your thought process there? And they said, well, it's really hard to break the work down. And I said, well, yes, it, yes, it is. It's, it's supposed to be hard to break the work down. This is the biggest challenge. You know, it's difficult. But the answer is not to abandon the tighter feedback cycle for one that's 50% longer. The answer is to let's work together on the stories and, and let's slice the work down. And they said, no, we're, we really want to do three-week sprints. And I said, well, I, I'm your coach and it's not an option just yet. We'll come back to that later. But the problem is, again, we come back to that cargo culting. People are, are Dreyfus model, level one, two, and three. Level three Dreyfus model folks are recipe people. They have a series of recipes written on a card and they can follow that recipe but they can't adjust the recipe. They can't season to taste, but they can do three teaspoons of this, two teaspoons of that, one cup of this. But if they have to vary from it, they'll throw the recipe away. So they get into something. I mean, we can, what you call that, what, scrum but. We do scrum but not the retrospectives. We do scrum but not the tight feedback loop. Um, people don't understand what the principles behind the practices are. So when the practice gets difficult, they throw it away. So one of the things we're trying to do with Grow is if you look at the practices as we lay them out, there's there's a standard template for what a practice looks like. And we start off with here's the description, here's the problems it solves, here's what happens if you don't do it. You know, we, we try to walk people through this is why you want to do it, not just follow the steps, have a daily meeting, answer three questions, shut up, go. It's the point is to get people communicating and talking and to frequently have a peer-to-peer -peer discussion. We have a section, <coughs> excuse me, of anti-patterns. I think at one point we called it the Amazingly Stupid Hall of Fame or something like that. And, and one of our beta testers said, man, I love what you guys have done. I love Grows. It is amazing. But my client is using every practice you have in the Amazingly Stupid Hall of Fame, and I can't show it to them because you called it the Amazingly Stupid Hall of Fame. Right. So can you can you call it something a little you know nicer? And, and so we did. Um, so like if I click on the continuous integration link, right? We start off with a description. We go to pain points, benefits. What's the application? Here's an adoption experiment. Here's how you set it up. Here's how you run the trial. Here's how you evaluate the feedback. What does it look like if it's running right? 
here's the warning signs that you're doing it wrong. Here's your growth path. And we renamed that final section, How to Fail Spectacularly. And if you have some time to flip through it, the inevitable question we get is, is wow, these are funny. How many of these are real? We go, no, nah, they're all real, man. Um, we actually, I had a client tell me, we have our daily stand-ups on Friday. <laughs> it took me a minute. We'll pretend it, like it, that was lag in the, in the conversation. <laughs> it, it took me a minute. And I said, daily. And, and the client said, yes, Friday's a day. <laughs> I had another team tell me we run our continuous integration every night. I said, is, is it really continuous? And they said, oh, yeah, it's Jenkins. Yeah. It's Jenkins, right. If it's it Jenkins, it's continuous. But the Pratt, they were stuck on the, the implementation, which was run Jenkins. They missed the principle, which was frequent feedback. The, the, the yeah. practice was get everybody in a room, stand up, and answer three questions. The principle was frequent peer-to-peer communication. And so we, we're trying to make sure that people both understand the practice and the principle. And I think that is a different way of teaching. But I also think things like Scrum were so popular because they came in with a set of steps. So we're also coming in with a set of steps, but with an intentional growth path to get you out of those steps on the other side of it as well. I like that. You know, I, I, some of the things you said reminded me of the sophomore, the word sophomore. And I know that for myself, I went through and practiced XP a couple times in two different teams as a practitioner, not as a leader implementing it. And then I practiced Scrum once or twice. And then I, a team and I thought what I could do would be to take what I had learned as a contributor to those teams and as a team member and take the pieces of XP that I liked and the pieces of Scrum that I liked and put them together and make a successful agile team. And that was so very sophomoric of me. What I really needed to do if I wanted to do it right, if I really wanted to understand how this worked, would have been to lead about 10 XP teams and lead about 10 Scrum teams and then go in and have a clear understanding of what needed to change to get the results that I wanted. But I think that happens a whole lot. What I see happening a ton, and maybe you see this too, Jared, is a scrum master who is, has gone to a training for a couple of days, or they've, they've led a couple of teams a couple of different times over a few years, and they really still don't have a true understanding of why we're doing the things like you're saying. Um, but they want to change it in such a way that it's, it actually ends up being harmful. Maybe I'm running over the same old ground here, but. No, when, when, when you change the practices without understanding why they were done in the first place, you start in, in, in fragile or agile fall, all the, the funny buzzwords, right? right? You get something that's, that's anti-fragile, that's, that's very static, that's very harmful, that eliminates the, the difficult discipline that comes of really doing a good job at, at, at agile practices, right? It's not easy to write all your tests first. It's not easy to keep the continuous integration system clean, or if it breaks, you fix it. Um, so we skip the things that are hard and do the things that are easy, and then we complain that things don't work. Um, I don't think my mom will ever listen to this. When, when my mom makes a recipe sometimes, <clears throat> occasionally, I love you, Mom, um, she'll come up on an ingredient she doesn't have, and she'll substitute in something. Com- like one time she was cooking something for Christmas or, or Thanksgiving, and she didn't have sour cream, so she put in yogurt. 
which you know is not really an equivalent thing. Not quite and the same. <laughs> not a, they not look, really. They look similar and they have similar uh, texture, but the taste is very different. Yeah, she confided in me. Yeah, no one will be able to tell. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean it bad. Mom is not a level five cook, right? Mom's a level <laughs> three cook. <laughs> she can follow a recipe and do a really good job, but when it comes time to improvise, it's usually harmful. You know? Love you so much, Mom. Um, <laughs> I, I, hopefully, she's not in your podcast demographic. Well, just give me your email address. I'll send her a copy. Of no, this. no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, th- but that's what we do, right? And the the other thing, people don't want to be changed. Nobody likes to be changed. Once you get out of that diaper stage, change is bad. Um, oh, come on! That was as ba- that was as good as the jokes are going to get. You might as well, have, yeah. <laughs> When you're a toddler, you want to be changed after that. Eh. But instead of changing the team, right, you said you had been on one team. It's much more effective, one, to, to guide the team through the steps so that they can learn and understand the need for change themselves. But two, we come back to the experiments, right? When I say I want to change you, Change implies permanence, right? The verbiage right up front, you just you, you bow your back and you dig in and you go, I don't, I don't care what you want to do. You're trying to change me. I'm going to resist you on principle. But an experiment, so an experiment, we can try it differently for one or two sprints, one or two iterations, and then let's come back and evaluate it. And if it's not working, we'll throw it out. When I first do that with a new team, I will often bring in a practice I'm pretty sure they won't like. Just so the team can see this is an experiment. And when it was done, he actually said, yeah, let's throw it out. Because how often have you worked with somebody who says, oh, this is a proof of concept. This is a trial. And it turns out all it really was was the initial adoption. They were planning on using it anyway. They'd already bought the tool. You're, you're going to use it. But we call it an experiment. A real experiment there should be one or two or three different attempts, different approaches, different implementations, and then we actually look at the result and pick one. So that's how you bring in change. You make it an experiment. You let the team work with it, try it, and if it doesn't fit your team, your company, your technology, or your culture, you chuck it and you find something else. Do you ever get resistance from management? Um you know, if they're if they're looking at, oh, we're going to be doing a bunch of experiments, some of which we're going to throw out. Do you ever get any pushback from them saying, well, I don't want to invest in stuff that we're just going to throw out. We don't want that here. So, here are the two buzzwords I use with management. Risk and, and shoot, I've forgotten the second buzzword. But risk is the important one, so we'll pretend that's the that's – the, so everything, the longer – the amount of time you give at risk mitigation, the longer the time you give a team, the more, the higher, the more dangerous, the higher the risk is that they're going to build the wrong thing, they're not going to build what you're expecting, that they're not going to build anything that works at all. So everything we're doing is trying to lower that risk. I'm not going to give you two months to work. I want you and your team to give me one thin vertical slice a, uh, of working code every two weeks. I want you to fire a, a proverbial tracer bullet from the UI all the way down through the mid-tier, the services, and into the database. But we're building a report that has 50 fields. We can't do 50 fields in two weeks. I know. I want one field in two weeks. I want two fields in two weeks. I want you to build the very basic skeleton of the report 
build a service, you know, build your mid-tier, build one item in the database, and we'll but but the tools we use won't let us set up Hello World in two weeks. Well, now that's good information to have, isn't it? But, <laughs> but we're going to have to stand up a server, and you know how hard that is. No, I don't. But, you know, I don't want to find out when it's time to go to production. I want to find out right up front. So if you've chosen a crappy technology solution for your server, we can go with something that you can actually stand up. I want to learn now. I want to learn as I go. And these experiments reduce risk. And risk is what managers are all about. They want to drive the risk down. They want to lower the risk. They want to mitigate the risk. Telling a team they have to change and pick a technology when they're just starting the project and they don't understand exactly the domain they're building to, they don't understand exactly the new JavaScript toolkit, they don't know Angular yet. Gosh, I was working with a team not so recently, a couple months ago, and we were setting them up, and they're doing some backlog grooming. They decided they wanted stories before they started working, and I'm like, okay, we'll spend a sprint, we'll, we'll groom your backlog. Hey, the new corporate standard is Angular. Do you guys know Angular? Oh, yeah, we know Angular. Are you sure you know Angular? Because it's a new corporate standard. Everything has to be in Angular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've read some books. We've taken some classes. We're still learning it, but by the time you need it, we'll know Angular. Are you sure? Oh, yeah, yeah. Angular's easy. All right, finished up our first iteration. It's time to work. Here's your first story. Wait, that says the UI is in Angular. Yep. We don't know Angular yet. <laughs> And, of course, some people got very upset by this. And I said, you know what? When do you want to find out that the developers don't know Angular and, and feel like they need six weeks of training to learn it? This happens on every project you go on, but it's usually hidden inside that six-month waterfall. And then at the very end, when it all blows up in your face and you had no idea, it's because they took two months to learn a new technology at the beginning. The difference with Agile is that you're seeing it. You're aware of it. It may be a little frustrating, but this happens on every project that's usually just hidden from you. It's okay that they don't know Angular, but because we're doing a tracer bullet in the first sprint, you can't hide that background anymore. You can't hide the fact that this server is difficult, that the tools aren't up to snuff, that the developers don't know this, that the testers don't have this automation framework down. This is right up front. The first two weeks, I want something that runs and can be demoed. And if you can't do that, then let's evaluate what we're doing, take a step back, throw an experiment in, and that's how I sell it to the execs. You're either going to go down the wrong path with your technologies or you're going to have a series of smaller experiments to prove out that your technology choices, that your architecture, that your design and your approach are actually functional. And one of the byproducts is I'm going to have a UI for you to look at real early so you can go show it to your customers, and they can go, what are you smoking? That is not the workflow I want. And we can adjust it with only one field on the report before we've added all 50, and we've already spent six weeks, six months, year and a half building out a product that nobody wants to use. We'll find out real early. We need to change direction. How? What's the smallest amount of money I can waste? Right, right. So you want to, you want to surface all of the, the rocks in the river before your boat strikes them. <laughs> Yes. And while the tide, with the, with the, yeah, there's a lot of water in the river, you can't see the rocks. Once you start lowering that water, you start to see, oh, look, here they are. And you want to know about them before it's too late to do something about it. 
It's a whole lot easier to steer around them than it is to patch a hole in a boat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Especially when you're still on the river, right? You're still in the boat. I mean, how many projects have you been involved with or had a front row seat for that just failed spectacularly? Many. Many. (laughs) We all have. We all have. Remember that number from the, the last podcast? 85%, 86% of waterfall projects fail, and 60% of agile projects fail. It's not always that the team did something wrong, right? Sometimes it's the economy, the business. There's all sorts of reasons. But you have better odds with Russian roulette than you do a software project. I'm going to quote you on that. (laughs) Isn't that scary? I mean, that's just nuts. You can you, know, you can play Russian roulette five or six times before you fail. Now, it's granted, it's it's a spectacular failure, I'm told. But software, man, fifty fifty would be good. If we could, as an industry, get to fifty fifty, we'd be we man, we'd be rock stars. Isn't that depressing? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing that, that that gets me. Like, if 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 a company that does software does manage to bring itself to a point where they can regularly have successful software projects, which I assume they're taking because they could be profitable at them. If they can get a handle on that, it would seem to me that they would be able to uh, completely dominate whatever uh, market that they're in. They surely would, but think about the dominant companies. Most of them are one-hit wonders. There's a company in our backyard that I won't name, one of the larger software companies in the world. They when I used to work there, they made upwards of 90% of their revenue off the one product, and they were trying to work on the second product. They never found that second. I mean, lots and lots and lots of base hits, but not another home run. Microsoft, they had one home run up front for years. All they had was the OS. Eventually, they discovered Microsoft Project and got a second home run, but they're still, they keep trying, right? The watch, the stylus, the pads, the... It's, it's harder to do than we think. How many companies do you know consistently churn out large projects? Most of them get that one. I mean, and part of it is right finding the right product in the right market at the right time. I mean, think of Microsoft introducing all this crap five, ten years before Apple and then watching Apple actually succeed. I mean, anyway, um, it's, it's a lot harder to do it. And most of the companies, if you really look closely, only have that one mega hit. And it's not that they... I don't know. There's there's a lot of things there, right? There's the market, there's the timing, but finding that second hit and then you know identifying the need and then being able to go successfully execute on it is a lot harder than we give it credit for. I give it that credit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I but I but I agree with you. Even finding the first hit, even finding the first hit is incredibly difficult, and so many people never ever get to the first quit the hit. They have to quit long before that for one reason or another. Um, but I, but I hear you. I think most of us don't give it enough credit. Um, so I just want to mention once again, we're, we're here. We're talking with Jared Richardson. We're going to, we've got a couple more questions here to finish up the episode. Once again, this episode of reflection as a service is sponsored by Beaufort Fairmont automated testing services, which is my company. We help teams get more automation, more test automation in the world. And we also help teams sync up testing and dev in agile environments. So an unsolicited endorsement, one of the words I said to one of my teams this morning is investing in test automation 
in a good continuous integration slash continuous testing system is the most important investment your company can make because as a team builds a product and they move into more features and it gets bigger, you can either start hiring tons and tons and tons of QA people or you can have been investing in that test automation all along. You still need exploratory testers. This doesn't eliminate that, that role, but a human cannot keep up with a productive team, especially when you get that base hit. Well, You've got to invest as you go. I, I completely agree. I love the, the thinking there. You see a lot of it just like I do. James sees a lot of it. Um, what I see now is that the software marketplace, everyone is writing software. Any industry that you're in, you're right. You have software as a major piece of your company. And yeah. with that being the case, your competitors are doing all these practices. They are moving fast. They are doing continuous delivery, or at least they're trying to, and they're able to put things out faster when they're doing automated testing in conjunction with some really great practices, like you mentioned, like exploratory testing and using manual testers appropriately. Um, when that is happening in your competitors, you just can't keep up if you're not doing it. If you're trying to put people on the task of doing testing or people trying to release software manually, you, you can't keep up with your competitor anymore. It's just not possible. Yeah, that's it. And, and, and that sort of test automation isn't an event. It's a lifestyle, it right? We think about the Olympics and somebody wins the Olympics and we see, say, see, I want that. In two weeks, every four years, we'll automate. Well, you, what you don't see is that you know the runners getting up at 5 a.m. every day and, and running, and it's an ongoing investment. Do every anyway. Sorry, I, I heard your spiel, and I, I I literally was preaching to the choir. Well, it wasn't the choir, that's why I was preaching to them this morning about that very topic. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's so important to be able to know what your software is doing today versus what it did yesterday. To be able to know that a new feature comes out or a new check-in happens, a new commit on Git, and that the software still works is a major, major achievement. Just knowing what changed is, is huge. Being able to come in, and I'm not saying that continuous integration only happens overnight, like you mentioned being a case that you've seen at some places. However, when you can come in in the morning and know immediately right off the bat that everything's good or everything's, something's wrong, that's a, that's a terrific way to be able to start your day. You have, you have purpose. You know what needs to be cleaned up from yesterday or that you can start on something new today. Well, I like to tell people, developers, you know, some of them act dumb, but they're actually pretty smart. And if you put up a, a nice continuous integration system and somebody checks in code and they break login, which happens more often than, we, than, than most people are even aware or want to admit, um, the developer who broke the test will get the email. Developers aren't dumb. And if you provide that level of fast feedback to a developer, they really learn fast. So you work on that critical mass of, of unit test, package level, service level, and integration test. You do defect-driven testing. You find a bug. You add a test. You do test-driven, right? You, do, you write a test. Then you implement your code. It will change the game. In six months, you will not recognize the stability that your product will have. And your developers will look so much smarter because they'll check in code. They'll break something. They'll get an email that says, hey, here's three things you broke with this small code commit, they'll fix it and your QA staff isn't even aware. It's automated. They get the feedback, they learn, and most of the time they stop making those mistakes. It, it's a game changer. Absolutely. Sorry. No, that's great, thank you. So I guess, you know, to, to finish up, do you have any questions to finish up? I had one that was kind of off topic. I think I, think I had the two big ones. 
So the chickens. The, the big chickens, right. So the oh, chick- <laughs> is that what you're, oh, you're going to ask him about his chickens? You don't have to. I was just, I figured that was the two big questions, which came first, the chicken or the egg, and how did you get chickens in the backyard? Those were the questions, absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. James, what are your questions? Well, well Paul, Paul I, I had the, so I had the questions about, you know, redeem agile. Give, give me the greatest redemption story. And then, um, you know, we had a good hour long chew on that. But Paul, you've got a follow up. Well, I guess I just kind of wanted to see, I, I like to know where people see things going. And I know that in terms of methodology and discipline and the people skills and organizational, you've made a very clear statement with the grows methodology about where you see things going. Maybe in terms of technology outside of just the people part, where do you see software development going? Where do you see uh, the software industry going? Oh, wow. Um, I got to say, people that take the time to learn things like a functional language. I I had lunch last weekend with a, a friend who was describing a functional JavaScript language to me. And he was explaining it. And I said, yeah, that's functional. And he said, no, no, it's not functional. It's just stateless. And, and you know, that's what, that's what functional is. He, he didn't even know what he didn't know. Um, the industry belongs to the people who care enough about their craft to self-educate. To If your employer won't send you to a conference, you pay your own way. If you want to go to a conference and you don't want to pay, you write a talk so they'll let you in for free. The The future belongs to the people that are willing to invest in themselves. If you're not willing to invest in yourself, don't expect your employer to. If you don't think you're worth it, they certainly won't, and you probably aren't. However, that was not your question. Um, <laughs> That's a great answer, though. I, yeah, if you have anything to add about technology, where the actual technology is going, that's great. But I, I love that answer. That's a terrific answer. I agree with it wholeheartedly. Well, I'll tell you. And, and in that same vein, the big companies are stuck on Java and .NET. The really big enterprises are stuck on languages they've been using for 10 and 15 years. The startups that are popping up and eating their lunch with a 5- and 10-man team are not writing Java and .NET. They're mocking C-sharp. They make fun of the Java ecosystem. If you really want to be crazy productive, whether it's in a tiger team in your own company, whether it's your own startup, you know, look at Phoenix. Look look at, um, gosh, there's so many. And Go language and even Node uh, with JavaScript and Rust. Elm. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many cutting-edge languages out there. Ah, closure, man. That's so five years to go. I'm kidding. I know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Once again, I'm aging Scala. myself. Uh, I'm more than five years old. There are so <laughs> many cutting-edge languages, and there are so many. You want something that's expressive but terse, right? So it takes me how many lines to do this in Java versus how many lines it takes me to do this in Ruby versus how many lines it takes me to do this in Phoenix. The more you're leveraging those built-in libraries, those built-in, the database handling and manipulation and, and active record and Rails versus what you have to do by hand in Java and .NET, the industry is going to belong to the people and the larger companies that are willing to invest and, and intentionally experiment with these other languages instead of waiting for a big change that costs them $10, 20000000 million to do a change. 
experiments are much cheaper. I don't know what technology you know will own the future, but it's going to belong to the people that are agile, that are responsive enough, not agile the methodology, but agile the, the movement, right? The nimble people who are willing to look at what's out there, adjust, intentionally experiment, learn, and then strike on what they've discovered. That's terrific. So, Jared, we really appreciate having you on. Thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I've known you guys both for a while now. It's it's nice to, to actually get together and chat a little bit. I'm looking forward to one day actually doing some work together. I, we'll, we'll keep pushing it. We'll make it happen. <laughs> one of these days, I think we're going to end up doing some work together somewhere, somehow. If we it's are. a side project or, or whatever it is, I'd love to do it. So once again, thanks so much for, for coming out on the show. Thank all of our listeners for listening to us. Please go out on iTunes, on Google Play, on SoundCloud, and rate us. That helps us a lot. It helps us get new listeners. It helps us get to a point where we can do more things for you. James, this has been fun, man. Anything you want to talk about before we go? I I feel like we've, I don't know, like we've we've had such a a long and meaty discussion about it. I feel like I'm I got nothing left. I feel like I've grown. <laughs> But I'm <laughs> I see what you did there. So the two URLs to hit, right? Growsmethod.com and effectiveagileteams.com. You can find tons of additional information. And with effective agile teams, you'll eat it up. But I'm and it'll really grow on you. Sorry. That's great. So, and Jared, if people want to get in touch with you, is there contact information you can give us? Oh, sure. Uh, Jared at agileartisans.com. Great. And we're on Twitter. James and I, James is at JD Jeffers. I am at D Paul Merrill and you can find us somehow. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Peace out. <laughs>